Legacies, where we every single episode dive into the stories and the players and the legends that make up the mythology of baseball and have made this the game that we love so much. My name is Daniel Port, and I am excited to have you here with us today. We're going to take a break here from talking about players who retired this year because the Hall of Fame announcements came out. And we've already talked about Adrian Beltre, but there are two players we haven't talked about. We're going to knock out one of them today, and we're going to talk about Todd Helton, one of my favorite players, historically speaking. And then we'll get to Joe Maurer here before the season starts. When you do a podcast like this, you end up falling in love, so to say, with a lot of different players. And when you watch baseball, as long as I have, I've been watching, what, probably baseball sounds like seven or eight years old. I'm 38 now so you know almost three decades worth of baseball you end up rooting for falling in love with a lot of different players for a lot of different reasons they might have all the athletic ability or the big moments or the smile or the personality or all these different things that can really draw you to a player and I think I, I like to think I've covered some of them here on this podcast and talking about becoming an Evan Longoria fan because of big home runs or listening to someone tell me about Edgar Martinez hitting, you know, the double or talk about Griffey, talking about these different players that really resonated throughout the years. And I feel like what's really interesting is I feel like having watched a lot of them, I've come to, to root for them. I've come to love them like a fan. And I think that's even true for players who reading about from the 60s and the 50s and, and even earlier that you do something like this long enough and you become a fan. But sometimes also players are pushed on to you for better or for worse. And sometimes you push back and sometimes you get it and it clicks and you fall in love with them too. And for me, that's the story of how I came around to Todd Helton. My partner, who obviously means the world to me, is a diehard Colorado Rockies fan. She went and got her PhD out here in in Boulder, Colorado during like really one of the best stretch runs of Rockies history and she fell in love with the team and for her the sun rose and set in terms of her baseball fandom with Todd Helton. And by the time we had met and and uh, got together Todd Helton had long since retired. But just listening to her talk about how much Todd Helton meant to her and how he was her favorite player and all of these things, it really drew me in to to want to know more about him and, and to, to root for him. And so I, I started digging in and, and reading stories and looking at his stats and doing all these things about Todd Helton. To read Clint Hurdle talk about his swing in this way, he said, is such a flat-out sweet swing. I'm reminded of Don Mattingly or George Brett. And that's the ultimate praise. And he had this, like, rugged kind of, not so much when he first came up, but he eventually grew a beard, and he liked to hunt and fish and do all that stuff. The Rockies actually gave him a horse when he retired. He fit this whole sort of area here in Denver, like the 
and a rugged mountain manny look. It was just perfect. And the more and more you connected to it, the more and more you talked to people who lived here in Denver, Colorado, where I currently reside, you just really got blown away by how beloved he was here in Colorado. And it's it was easy to miss Todd Helton. I think that's kind of the, the interesting thing is sometimes you'll see some of the numbers, and we're going to talk about them here today, and you go, he did that? That happened? How did I miss that? And part of it was that the Rockies weren't very good for much of his career. He was even often referred to in the press as the best player you've never heard of. And some of that also, I think, is because he played in Coors, and, and obviously that causes a lot of dismissal to the things that he were able, was able to achieve. And between you and me, we're going to get into we'll get into Coors Field. We'll talk about all that. We've talked about it back when I did Nolan Arenado uh, a little while back, but we'll revisit a lot of that. But the numbers themselves are actually pretty impressive in and of itself. It's 61.8 career war, which is 17th all-time amongst first basemen. He's 15th in Jaws, which, for the record, he finished higher in Jaws than Eddie Murray and Hank Greenberg, both of who ranked pretty highly on this list and are Hall of Famers. And he actually finished just .4 Jaws behind Willie McCovey, of all players. I think it's worth noting that some of these lower war totals a lot of it has to do with it that he played first base. And obviously, it's worth taking that into consideration. You don't want to, like, ignore the idea that he was a first baseman as opposed to playing third or second or whatnot. But when you start talking about, say, that 70 war line that we've been talking about with Scott Rowland and Nolan Arenado, where we'd like to see him get to, and say for Jose Ramirez and stuff like that, I think 61.8 is pretty darn close considering he was getting not really the same sort of defensive boost that he would if he was playing a different position. But either way, that's still pretty darn good company to be in. He was a five-time All-Star. He played. He is 22nd all-time amongst first basemen in games played with 2,247. He's 15th in runs scored with 1,401. He's 13th in hits with 2,519. Fourth all-time in doubles amongst first basemen with 592. He's 26th amongst first baseman home runs with 369. He's 23rd in RBIs with 1,406. Now, he's also 12th in walks with, with 1,335 amongst first basemen. And he has a career 316 average with a 414 OBP, a 953 OPS, and a 133 OPS plus over, what, 17, yep, 17 seasons. Now... If you take those career games played numbers at 2,247 and you look at that slash line, that 316 batting average is the highest amongst of those 22 players. His 414 OBP, that was only, there were only two players who had a higher OBP amongst that group, and his 953 OPS was uh, fourth amongst that group. So you're talking a really impressive grouping of numbers. Amongst the group of players, it's got Albert Pujols in it. The aforementioned Eddie Murray, same for Willie McCovey. It's got Jim Tomei in there, Fred McGriff, uh, Harmon Killebrew, technically David Ortiz, Frank Thomas, Jimmy Fox, Jason Giambi. Like, those are some really good baseball players. And that's how he stacks up along that slash line amongst those players. That's really impressive. It's worth noting, too, with those games played, that's more than 
uh, Lou Gehrig. It's more than Jeff Bagwell, who are both in the Hall of Fame. It's more than Joe Torre, who's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, it's more than Joey Votto, who we've, we've ranked pretty high on this list. More than Gil Hodges. So it would be hard to really be convincing if you were to argue that he didn't have these really great numbers over, frankly, a significant sample of games. That's a lot of Hall of Famers that he played more games than and then performed way better than. Really just an impressive career track record. To dig a little uh, deeper into the individual seasons, across his 17 seasons, he hit over 312 different times. He had an on-base percentage over 409 times, a slugging percentage over 508 times. He mashed 41, 40 or more doubles seven times and 30 home runs or more six times. He topped 400 bases twice, which, think of it this way, according to Jay Jaffe in his write-up last year on Helton, he mentioned that this feat had only been uh, repeated by Sammy Sosa. That's it. One other player since 1960. Really impressive that he was able to hit top 400 total bases in the season. Because that, uh, when you really think about it, that involves him being able to you know, hit for average. It involves him being able to hit for power so he can stack up all those bases. But also, he's still got to be walking. He needs to be getting on base. Like, it, it really, it, when you look at total bases in a season, that is a great way to get a sense of just how effective a player is at not just getting on base. We have OBP to do that. But essentially how valuable those bases are, how how much is he contributing all around. It's a really great way to get a snapshot of that. And again, since 1960, only one player has topped 400 bases, and that was Sammy Sosa. And by the way, Helton did it twice. Perhaps my favorite stat, though, is that nine times, so in nine separate seasons, Helton actually walked more often than he struck out, which is just incredible for a, a power hitter, for a heart-of-the-lineup hitter. That is absolutely incredible. Think about that. He played 17 seasons, so in more than half of his seasons of his career, he walked more often than he struck out. In terms of his defensive ability, he did win three gold gloves at first base, but in reality, for the most part, at least if you look at defensive war across his career, it's a bit up and down. Uh, he has a few excellent defensive seasons and a couple terrible ones. For the most part, comes out to be an average, uh, if not just a neutral defender for most of his career, being worth a total of negative five defensive war across his career. So not nearly as poor, say, like when we talked last episode about Miguel Cabrera or anything like that, but especially once his back starts to go later on in his career, his defense falls off a cliff, but he is a three-time gold glover, so there were moments in which his defense was at a high level, so to say. Now, I mentioned that peak and how excellent that peak was, and much like Cabrera in last episode, while his peak is, is short, it is absolutely incredible it is one of the best hitting peaks really ever for that time period and it really runs from about 2000 to 2007 and if you want to think of it this way just to give you some numbers from it we'll go through year by year as we always do when we get there but he was worth more than 6.7 worn five of those seven seasons 
over that time period, 238 home runs. He was third in runs over that time period with 893. He was second in hits with 1,500. He was first in doubles with 377. He was sixth in RBIs with 866. He was number one over that time period of all players in average. He was number two in OBP behind him and Bonds. He was number three in OPS. The only people ahead of him were Barry Bonds and Albert Pujols. And he was fourth in war over that time period. A-Rod, Bonds, and Pujols were the only guys ahead of him. He was number one in runs created. And he was number one in extra base hits over that time period. And he was number two in total bases, again, behind just Barry Bonds. You see this picture of this guy who was really one of the best hitters of that time period. That's about a seven-year stretch, right? It's basically him, Bonds, Pujols, and A-Rod. Those are the hitters of that time period. It's a near 10-year period. It's not quite, obviously, it's only seven years. But that's a heck of a run. And during that time period, he's an argument as one of the better hitters of his generation. And obviously... We have to talk about Coors with that, that a lot of people argue his that he benefited greatly from Coors. And especially, I think, some of that is true in the uh, doubles and batting average categories. Coors Field, for those of you who may not be familiar with my take on Coors Field, if you go back and listen to my Nolan Arnato episode, I, I talk about it there. But Coors is huge. It's enormous. It's one of the biggest outfields in baseball, right? And so everyone thinks about the home runs. And don't get me wrong, the the altitude here in Denver certainly helps elevate home runs. I think they say it's something like it adds an average of five to six feet on every fly ball. I mean, that's not insignificant. That's going to lead to more home runs. But the outfield is the real uh, difference maker. That it is so big that it what it is doing is making the gaps in the outfield huge. So it's easier to hit for average, and it is easier to hit uh, doubles and triples. With that being said, though, it's hard to really hold that against Helton. Again, first off, where you play is where you play. It's, it's unfair to necessarily to blame him for that, and it would be difficult to figure out what it would be if he hadn't played at Coors or things like that, because what a lot of people try to do is take his away numbers, which were... Still pretty darn good. He still was a career 285 hitter away from Coors Field. That, some people try to take that number and say, well, that's what he would have been. And that's not true, and it's absurd. And the reason being, so then to mathematically get into the other really big, or I guess scientifically get into, I should say, the real advantage that Coors has is that because of the atmosphere and because of the altitude, Balls essentially break differently here in Denver. And so curveballs don't quite curve as much. Fastballs don't uh, lift up as much. All these different things. And they make balls more hittable. That is true. The hard part is when you leave Coors, the difference is striking and remarkable, right? Suddenly you're going from this thing where nothing breaks as much as it, it usually does and all these things to everything breaking way harder than you're used to. So, one of the things they talk about a lot of times with hitters when they leave Coors Field, uh, they go on the road, is that they almost have to relearn how to, how to hit, how, how the balls are going to look. And it can be incredibly jarring. It's why some people say, oh, just stick a hitter in Coors and watch him 
reinvent his career. And there have been hitters who've done that. You can go down the line and look at Justin Morneau did it for a while here. Michael Kadire did it. Like You've seen hitters do it. But it there is a place where it is genuinely more difficult than to go on the road if you play at Coors. There's also the mention the altitude is harder on the body. It genuinely makes recovery longer and more difficult. Injuries uh, last longer. Like, all these different things. So, understand that while Coors did give a sizable advantage, it also had its extreme difficulties as well. And I, for me, while I know a lot of people hold against Helton and against all Rockies hitters, that they play in Coors, I think it ends up coming out in the wash to a certain degree. Okay, with that out of the way, let's take our first break here. And then when we come back, now that we've looked at Helton's uh, big picture career and looked at the, the big numbers, let's hop back in and really start telling the story of newly minted Hall of Famer Todd Helton. Welcome back. So, Don Elton was born in Knoxville, Tennessee in 1971. His father, Jerry, was a minor league catcher, actually, for the Minnesota Twins back in 1968-1969. And every so often, you're just gift-wrapped with certain anecdotes for a player that you're just like, my gosh, that's like the most like picturesque fairy tale kind of uh, story that feels just so like not uniquely American. That's not what I mean because you, you hear stories of players down in, in in other countries playing stickball or learning how to field with cardboard or things like that. So I don't mean to say it's uniquely American, but it just sounds so I don't know like Norman Rockwell to hear that Jerry taught Todd how to hit at five with a self-built batting tee that was supposedly made from washing machine hose. Like, it's just like one of those things, just, just, I don't know, it just sounds like something out of a myth or a legend, and I just love it so, so much. But from a very young age, baseball was a huge part of Todd Helton's life and was a huge driving force in uh, his life. He would grow up playing baseball and football, he ended up attending Central High in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he excelled at both sports. Was incredible at both of them. Initially, his major sport, and this would be for really through college, his best sport was considered football. He was on the 24th ranked baseball team in, in all of high school baseball in 1990, and by the end of the season had moved to, this is his sophomore season, had moved to 16th, and he, they ended up winning the Tennessee State tournament that year he was excelling at baseball as well right away he actually hit to give you an idea he hit 495 that season again this is as a sophomore and he was a pitcher as well he pitched to a 9-0 record the 0.25 era and that same season he was the qb for the football team which was the 20th ranked team in the country and he also played defensive safety so i want you to give an idea not only was he a two-sport athlete but he played four positions across those two sports. He was a, an excellent hitter. I don't believe an outfielder and uh, sometimes first baseman. But then it was a pitcher as well. And then on top of it, played football and was the quarterback. You know, the hardest position on the field. And then also would flip over on defense and play defensive safety. That's incredible. Now, don't get me wrong. 
it's not uncommon at, at high school levels to do that. I played high school football, and I was a two-way player for a large chunk of my high school career. But, like, I went to a school with something like 200 people in my class. I think we had 800 people in the entire school where I went to, college, where I went to high school. God help him. This was in, in Knoxville for one of the, for nationally ranked programs. That's how good he, of an athlete he was. That he played multiple positions for nationally ranked teams is just it's incredible. It really speaks to what an incredible athlete he really was. Now, as a junior, he ends up winning Knoxville Player of the Year in baseball, and his senior year, he really excelled at football. But baseball still also as well, he was named the Regional Player of the Year for baseball and was actually drafted out of high school by the San Diego Padres in the second round. But he ends up declining to go to the Padres to go to Tennessee to play football. And he actually would end up walking onto the baseball team as well. And when asked about it, Helton, about eight or nine years later, would reflect on the decision saying, it was a very hard decision for me not to leave when I was drafted out of high school. I really always wanted to be a baseball player. I had some pressure for my family to stay around and play football, and I don't regret that decision that I made. I'm glad I got an opportunity to do what I did at Tennessee. Going to play football at Tennessee is a interesting what-if here. We know, with the hindsight of history, that Helton's career would be shortened by by injury and by especially back injuries and you know knee injuries and things that would sap him of his power and his strength and things like that, that what if he had taken that that contract with the San Diego Padres the year before? I assume the reason he went back, he can say it was to go to college, but probably because he understood he'd be a first-rounder if he went back into the draft after going to college. But there's a what if of like, what if we had gotten a couple extra years where he got to start that career a little earlier and there's no way we'd know it would play out that way or play out the same way that it ended up doing. And therefore, we'd get another 30, 40 home runs for Helton and more numbers and things like that. that like, we don't know it will work out that way because who knows? Maybe he needed to end up in Colorado. Maybe he needed the refinement of playing some college years and whatnot. But it is an interesting sort of what if. But he does go to Tennessee and he does well. He at first, actually, since he went there to primarily play football, he walked on, as I mentioned, to the baseball team. For the first two seasons he's there, he backs up future NFL QB Heath Schuler, and serves well as the backup. And then after Schuler would graduate, Jerry Colquitt would take over, but actually gets hurt in the first series of the first game of the season. So this is in his junior year. Helton actually takes over as a starting QB and does well across the first four games of the season, but short-lived as he would suffer a knee injury in that fourth game of the season, and that would actually be really the last football game he would play in of his career. Now, the fascinating part is, do you know who takes over? This is I love this. This is such a cool little story. Do you know who takes over for Todd Helton here at Tennessee this year? Peyton Manning. This is the beginning of Peyton Manning's sort of college and then eventually NFL to Hall of Fame uh, football career. And they would actually become fast friends while playing together. That would last the entire rest of, well, their lives. And in fact, you would actually see back when, uh, I remember this because I was here in Colorado when Peyton Manning came to play for the Broncos. And they would go on to win a Super Bowl and all those things. 
Manning and Helton you'd often actually see them making public appearances together they would often do things together it was really a fun cool moment for for Denver so that's a fun little twist in the story as well now in terms of baseball his junior year he hits 407 with 20 home runs and 92 RBIs that's an incredible college baseball season by the way that was only at the plate he actually pitched as well. He saved 11 games for Tennessee, which is a Tennessee record, with a 0.89 ERA that year, and is named the National Collegiate Player of the Year, which is he's one of the best Tennessee athletes ever in a lot of ways. It's really fascinating. He was actually named to the Tennessee Athletic Hall of Fame. And um, at the end of that year, the Rockies will draft him number 8th overall in the 1995 draft. Helton wouldn't linger in the minors very long. He, he hits just 254 with one home run in 54 games at A-ball. He's promoted to double-A in 1996 and was ranked the number 32 prospect in all of baseball by Baseball America. He responds by hitting 332 in 93 games there in double-A and is promoted to triple-A where he hits 352 in 21 games. 1997 finds him back in AAA, where he hits 352 again with 16 home runs in 99 games with 31 doubles. This earns him a promotion to the big leagues on August 2nd. When he makes his debut in that day, fan favorite big cat Andres Galarraga was entrenched at first base at the time, so he actually made his debut as a left fielder of all things. He would go 2-4 for four in his debut with a single, a home run, and a walk. The... The Colorado faithful were already at a fever pitch for the Todd father as he would grow to be called. Yes, he's the original Todd father. Todd Frazier can bite me. This is the real true Todd father. And this was one heck of a start to a Hall of Fame career that was now off and running. Overall on the season, he hits 280 with five home runs in 35 games, which is not too bad for considering how fast he moved his way up through the minors. Jumping into the 1998 season, he takes off. Helton hits 315 with a 380 OBP and a 911 OPS, which is good for a 119 OPS plus. He hits 25 home runs with 37 doubles, 97 RBIs, and 78 runs scored. He would go on to finish second to Kerry Wood in the Rookie of the Year voting, and that was probably correct. Wood ended up putting up a 3.8 war over the course of the season, while Helton put up just 3.2 war. So, a really respectable rookie season and a good second place finish, but Wood definitely deserved to win the award. Now, heading into the offseason, it's worth noting, the Rockies aren't going to make the playoffs a lot in Don Helton's career. In fact, they won't see the playoffs until 2007. I don't want to jump too far into that yet, because that is a season to remember. We'll talk about that when we get there, but... I know usually we end up having a lot of playoff stores, a lot of things pushing a lot of the early years or different things like that. That's not the case for Helton. Keep in mind that for the most part, really we're going to be a couple years before we have some postseason stores for Todd Helton. Now in the offseason heading into 1999, the Rockies would actually extend Helton for a four-year deal. And that shows their commitment right away to buy out those arbitration years to extend him. And, and make him the face of the franchise. Now, this is Helton's big breakout year. I didn't include it in his peak years, but you probably could. It genuinely is that good of a season. He hits 320 with a 395 OBP, with a 981 OPS, with 35 home runs, 
39 doubles, 113 RBIs, 114 runs scored. He's worth 2.9 war that season, which when you hear those numbers, remarkable. He even actually hit for the cycle at one point this season. It's just a fantastic breakout season. Somehow, like I said, 2.9 war, I get it, but really war wasn't such a big deal back then. He gets no MVP votes, which sort of blows my mind. I have a feeling a big chunk of it is because the Rockies win just 72 games that season. Between that and the Coors Field discount that Helton always seems to get, really this season tends to end up running under the radar, I think, for voters and for in terms of recognition. Because he's not an all-star that year. He doesn't win a silver slugger. It's surprising. Now, in the offseason, Helton would actually get married to uh, his college sweetheart. And you would think that would be the biggest news. But no, 2000 is a season to remember for Helton. He is absolutely incredible. I'm gonna. This, there's a lot here, so I'm gonna try and go through it all here. He leads all of baseball with a 372 average. He also leads him in RBIs with 147, doubles with 59, leads in slugging percentage with a 698 mark, and in OPS with a 1.162 OPS. And total bases with 405. So 405 total bases. That's the go along with 42 home runs and 138 runs scored. Now, if you look at those seasons, the that is tied for 6th most extra base hits in a season all time. It's tied for 56th most RBIs in a season. It's tied for the 7th most doubles ever in a season. And tied for 23rd all time in total bases. This ends up earning him a trip to his first All-Star game. It wins him his first Silver Slugger as well. Now, he's worth 8.9 war that year and finishes fifth in the MVP voting. And that leads to the National League. Should have won it running away. That, to me, is an absolute no-brainer. I, I do not understand what was going through the voters' minds this year. But this year, actually, the award ends up going to Jeff Kent. Now, again, as I mentioned, Helton had 8.9 war that year. Hel- Jeff Kent, 7.2 war. He was a full 1.7 war higher than Kent. And Kent wins the award. It's just insane to me. Absolutely almost unforgivable. It's how bad it is. It, this, this is in the Juan Gonzalez MVP ripoff territory. And it, it's hard because I feel like it all works out because Helton ends up making the haul. But it was a little touch and go there for a minute until really in like year four or so. Because Helton gets in his six year voting where he really started to get some momentum towards getting voted in. And MVP would have gone a long way to to getting him in. And I feel like you really have to get frustrated with some of these things because it can make or break a player's Hall of Fame chances. And Helton was, in many ways, on the border. And this could have made a big difference. And so it just it's just a bad job done by the voters, and it drives me crazy. So this is definitely in that uh, Juan Gonzalez territory, for sure. And I think some of it was obviously getting some bit of a discount. And not a good kind of discount. I guess when I say discount, I think you feel like you're like, look, I got $3 off of this thing I got at Target. He, he, his, his production was discredited, I guess is maybe the better way to put it. Because of Coors Field, and I, we've gone over why I think that is fallacious. And I think it's weird that we don't we don't do this for other 
ballparks. It's not like Coors is the only good hitters ballpark. We don't, like, say, look at, go over to Boston and ask ourselves how many home runs did David Ortiz hit to that short porch? How many doubles were hit off of the Green Monster? How many? We don't look at these things in other ballparks and ask what advantages they give. I think of Houston and that they've got that big wall out there, but if you can pull it and you pull it in the air, you're going to hit a lot of home runs. I'm looking at Alex Bregman or something like that. They get away with that a lot. And I think that there's a place where we do this thing where we really put this emphasis on Coors. And don't get me wrong, Coors has its advantages. I think I've also made a point to lay out its weaknesses. It really messes you up when you go on the road because of the change in altitude. So I talked about the injuries and things like that and how you don't heal quite the same. You don't breathe quite the same. I live out here and I can tell you that I have, I play tennis, what, three, four times a week. I run, I bike. And there are times where I go up a couple flights of stairs. Sometimes I still can't catch my breath. So, like, the altitude is a whole different thing. I think it's as much of a weakness sometimes it is a benefit. But also, we just don't do this for other ballparks that have advantages like this. I think of how we're going to look at when we look 30 years from now, we talk about current Yankees players, about its short porch. Are we going to look at the way that other ballparks are, are... built to we don't talk about pictures and whether or not they play in pictures ballparks all these things so i find it annoying that that there's a lot of things that get discredited because of coors but also it doesn't help that the rockies weren't very good now they win just 81 games this season and this is back still in an era where wins really mattered for mvp voting and i, I suppose it still does but we're just a little more reluctant to to make that like a defining thing i think we would have looked at this voting and said sure the rockies stunk helton leads the league in, in, in war and it, by a huge margin. And I think that would have been enough. It, it's just frustrating because I think Helton absolutely should have an MVP award to his name and he should have won it here in this season. It's an incredible season. Again, some of these numbers are just outrageous. It's 372. He had a 400 average, I think, up through June or something like that. He, he hits 147 RBIs. It's crazy. 59 doubles. I laid out there how this is an all-time season by, like, extra base hits and, and doubles and RBI. Like, it's an incredible season. And I think it just doesn't get its proper recognition. And then historically, we don't remember it for how good it was because he doesn't win the MVP this year. Now, of course, the Rockies don't make the playoffs, so we head into the 2001 season. And again, the Rockies recognizing that Todd Helton is the face of the franchise and hopefully that... Someday they will get the ship righted. They sign him to a 10-year deal. So they extend him all the way through 2011. And suddenly we're looking around and Todd Helton is getting paid Alex Rodriguez money at the time. And that's a big deal for both the Rockies and for Helton. And he responds by hitting 336 with a 432 OBP and a 1.116 OPS, which is good for a 160 OPS+. plus. With 49 home runs, 54 doubles, 146 RBIs, and 132 runs scored. Now that's the that makes him the first major leaguer to have back-to-back 100 extra base hit seasons. This, with I believe 103 extra base hits, if I do my math, was fifth most all-time. If you look at it this way, so if you take since 1933, no, I'm sorry, 1930 actually, only Bonds has hit more extra base hits than Todd Helton. Technically, if you go the four. Uh, seasons that were better than this one by extra base hits. 
All of them but one occur before 1931. This is telling you just how good and how prolific Helton was at hitting extra base hits. And the crazy thing about Bonds doing this, because he had 107 this same year for the record. Because this is the year he breaks Hank Aaron's record. He hits, uh, what, 72 home runs this season? 73? He didn't quite have the same home runs to doubles ratio that Helton had. But it was an incredible season overall for Helton. He just really just absolutely rips the ball. And this earns him his second All-Star game in a row, his second Silver Slugger in a row, and actually he wins his first Gold Glove this year as well. He finishes ninth in MVP voting, which is uh, crazy considering the season that he had. He deserved fifth if you go by WAR. He was uh, fifth in the league in WAR with 7.8 WAR, and he actually this is a number that kind of blows my mind sometimes. You see this, he comes just seven RBI short of hitting 300 home runs across two seasons. I'm sorry, 300 RBIs across two seasons. That's just a lot of runs driven in when you consider the year before the Rockies win just 81 games. And then in uh, 2001, they win only 78 games. So he's just driving in. If you get on base in front of Todd Helton, he's going to drive you in. That's how good of a hitter he was. And it's just a very impressive season for Helton. And I think that there's a place where you can look at the Rockies and, because, again, it's one of those things that they're going to hold against Helton, right? And this is why I hate using wins when it comes to MVP voting or anything like that, is that most is because they couldn't figure out pitching at this time period. This is, I think, right around when they're starting to introduce the humidor. And so it was just impossible to pitch in course. It's just impossible. They had, they really didn't, when it's pre-analytics, so they, they still were figuring out even how to make it passable. And... I think that there's there's a funny thing where Helton gets punished a lot for the Rockies' records throughout this time period. And, and then eventually in the Hall of Fame voting, a lot of people point out his his team's records. And yeah, But it was because they couldn't pitch, not because they didn't score runs. They were consistently up there and runs scored. And, and you can see the numbers that Helton is putting up here. I, I, have, I have a hard time holding the fact his team couldn't pitch against him there. So now in 2002... We start to see the beginning of a drop-off from Helton being this superhuman destroyer of worlds into merely being, like, one of the best hitters in baseball at the time. And I think there were rumors going around that he was playing through injury, and and in retrospect, most have admitted he was playing through some kind of an injury. My suspicion is we're going to get to a place where not to put the cart before the horse or whatnot. We know eventually the thing that's going to derail Todd Helton's career is his back. And it's my opinion that the back injuries start here. This really starts wearing on where something is. Because you don't see a guy drop from 42 home runs down to 30, which is what he hits in 2002, without something nagging at him. Without injury. And he never will hit 40 home runs again from this point on. And so you just have to think that this is where it all starts to kick in. But... He does have, he has a great season. He hits 329 with a 429 OBP and a 1.006 OPS with 30 home runs, 39 doubles, 109 RBIs, and 107 runs scored. And that's good enough to get him to his third All-Star game, wins his third Silver Slugger, and he actually wins his second Gold Glove here, winning two in a row here. And he finishes 19th in MVP voting with a 6.3 war. And the Rockies are an absolute mess. Think of it this way. 
If you go through 2001, 2002, you got to remember, this is also when Larry Walker is, is playing for them. And so both of these guys are in their peaks. They're both playing at an incredibly high level. Those are two Hall of Famers playing on the team at the same time. And his team is not very good. It's just, it's one of those, you go up and you talk about, we've talked about a bunch of different players throughout the, the history of this podcast where their lack of, talk about Joey Votto or something like that, where them not getting the playoffs really puts this damper in their careers and their teams not being good really hamper things. And that's true for Helton too. Now, and it's worth noting this season in particular, the Rockies were an absolute mess, especially on the mound. They win just 73 games in 2002. And this left both Helton and the Rockies looking for answers. Helton had said, basically described, and this is a season where he hit 329 with 30 home runs for the record, as the season where he did so many things wrong to fix. And that just blows my mind, but tells you also how hard of a worker he was and how much he wanted to win, that he felt like there was still another level he needed to get to in order to to get the Rockies to that next uh, level. So he he goes into 2003, I mean, just absolutely locked in and determined to to bounce back, and he absolutely does. He hits 358 with a 458 OBP and a 1.088 OPS, which is good for a 165 OPS plus. With 33 home runs, 49 doubles, 117 RBIs, and 135 runs scored. Goes to his fourth All-Star game, wins his fourth Silver Slugger, and finishes seventh in the MVP, which is accurate. His 6.3 war that season was basically spot on at seventh in the league there that year. Now, to give you an idea of just how consistent Helton had been over this time period, this is his fifth consecutive 100 RBI season. His he hit 35-plus doubles for the seventh consecutive season. And you could tell, I think, that while all these numbers were good and all these this consistent output and his personal achievements meant a lot to him, the team not winning was starting to wear on him. The, the, the Rockies, like, tried to be good at some point in the season, from what it sounds like. Getting into like right around the middle of August or so, they were right around 500. They had a shot to make a push in the division, and then instead they fell apart and would finish in fourth place that season. They win just 74 games. Not only were they not getting better, they were getting worse, despite Helton producing at this high level. And you could tell it was wearing on him. In fact, the quote that he put out at one point was that when asked about the playoffs and the lack of winning and whatnot. He said, I would like to scoreboard watch at least one day. That's just like such a sad quote. I, I, if I had heard that at the time, I would have wanted nothing more for him than to make the playoffs. Like that just, even reading it now just breaks my heart a little bit. And I think the hard part is that the, the biggest difficulty of the Rockies is like it's not even like they come close. They're not good at really any of these years. <clears throat> Again, they're two Hall of Famers on this team at this point. Now, one other quote that Helton had here, apparently talking to Troy Rennick of the Denver Post. He said, it's like a dog who has never had table scraps. I really don't know what it tastes like. I would love to get a taste of the playoffs. I hope I will get to, and I hope it's this year. I am not on the three- or four-year plan to get there. I'm on a one-year plan. And that was his attitude going into 2004. That's what he wanted, and you could tell he wanted the playoffs so bad. He, and you just... 
you want it for him. It's hard to really... He just was so good, and they were so bad, and, and that just had to really just wear on him. Now, unfortunately for him, 2004 wasn't going to be it. He might have been on the one-year plan, but the rest of the Rockies weren't. They'd win just 68 games. Again, they got worse somehow during this time period. And if you think, well, was there a big drop-off from Helton? Was there? No, not at all. He was fantastic. He was utterly fantastic. He hits 347 with a 469 OBP and 1.088 OPS, which is good for 165 OPS plus. With 32 home runs, 96 RBIs, 115 runs, and 49 doubles. This takes him to his fifth All-Star game. He wins his third gold glove and somehow doesn't win the Silver Slugger Award, which blows my mind. I mean, a large chunk of this is because one of the things that's also going to hurt Helton in a lot of the voting and a lot of the All-Star game stuff and things like that is this is also Albert Pujols' time. And that obviously plays a big role in here, too. Sammy Sosa is still excelling. So there's a lot of slugger and bonds out there. Um, you know, the DNL was loaded in a way with, with sluggers, and especially with pools there uh, at first base as well. But he doesn't win the silver slugger, but he does finish in 16th place in MVP voting, which, again, considering the Rockies win 68 games, they're not doing him any favors in that voting, but he was 6th. By war with 8.3 war, the second highest total of his career, actually. And then just a fantastic season. And it's just wasted again by the Rockies, which just, oh, it just kills me. It makes me so upset. And you could tell Rockies fans wanted it too. One of the hard parts with being a fan out here, if you've ever been to Coors Field, I will tell you it's just the, it's the best place to go spend a summer day at a baseball game. And it does not matter most of the time here how bad the Rockies are. You're usually going to find that stadium pretty close to full, if not three-quarters full, on most summer days. And I feel like one of the hard parts is, and that's true now, I don't know how true it necessarily was then, but what I read, it seems to imply that was the case as well. And I don't know if that necessarily motivates the ownership to make big moves or big changes, but let me tell you, it just breaks my heart to, to see to see this, to read this and be like, man, it's just wasted a player here. But he was not wasted with the fans, and he was one of the most beloved players even at this point in in his career. Colorado just absolutely loved Todd Helton. So while he didn't quite have the victories and the winning at the time, he certainly was beloved at the very least. So now the offseason actually brings in really the first bit of controversy in Todd Helton's career. So apparently in a report at the time, St. Louis broadcaster Wayne Hagen, I don't know if I'm saying that, made a report that implied that Helton had used steroids back in 1998. According to the report, Helton's manager back in 1998, Don Baylor, was giving an interview with Hagen and he had said that he had advised Helton to get off the juice because he felt Helton was a good enough hitter that he didn't need any supplements or anything like that. Now, in these days, or even by by the time this report comes out, uh, and mind you, they're talking about 1998, the juice was meant things like steroids, andro, like things like that, things that were illegal and, and were against Major League Baseball. 
that's actually not what Baylor was referring to. Apparently at the time, Helton was taking creatine, which is a perfectly legal, over-the-counter bodybuilding supplement. I've taken creatine at one point in my life, back when I was back when I was playing rugby. And it's a really, you know, it's, it's perfectly legal. It, the I believe the Olympic Committee allows it. There are many sports that allow it. Not an illegal substance by any means, nor was he cheating. But that was the terminology at the time for 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 creatine. Baylor came back and said, you know, and clarified. That's not what he meant at all. He was talking about creatine and that, that was perfectly legal and perfectly fine. And Hagen would come back and apologize to, to Helton. And really, Helton never really let it go, supposedly. But it was this sort of crazy scandal that then wasn't a scandal that then got cleared up and forgot it happened for good reason. And it, what's interesting, I've run off some of these names that Helton is up there with. You talk about... Bonds and A-Rod and Pujols and outside of Pujols who I've never heard anything about either Bonds we know did steroids we know we know A-Rod did and I think that there's a place where it's important that Helton never did and yet I've read up the numbers over that time period he went toe-to-toe with them in terms of numbers and output so that matters and that's important that that smooth swing and that country boy strength is what kind of got him by you have to wonder, though, if this ends up weighing on him as we head through the 2005 season. He hits 320 again, but only hits 20 home runs. He hits 79 RBIs, 45 doubles, four, it has a 455 OBP with a 979 OPS, which is good for a 144 OPS plus. And apparently, and this gives some credence in my head to either one of two things. Either A, he was a bit in his head because of the whole controversy that was going on. And then just gotten through. Or B, he was hurt again. And the evidence I say that is that, obviously, A, the tremendous drop-off in power. But also a big part of it was that, like, Helton was messing with stuff. He felt like he couldn't get right. In an interview with Gary Graves from the USA Today, he said, apparently in late June, I've changed my stance 42 times in 42 games. I'm going to allow myself time to see the baseball. That's what I see as the problem, and that's what I'm trying to correct. I feel pretty comfortable right now, and that's what I'm going to stick with. And like I said, when you start messing with some of this stuff, it always feels like you're compensating for something. Wouldn't be shocked if it was his back or things like that, but it also just might have been tinkering or pressing or trying too hard as well. That certainly could be a possibility. And really, he ended up trying to start turning things around right around the All-Star game or so. But then a an injury crops up, and he actually spends uh, two weeks on the the injured list, which actually was, by the way, the first time he got on the injured list in his career with a strained left calf muscle. And again, to me, that sort of supports that something that's been bothering him probably all season, and finally it was too much for him to deal with. Now he comes back. And once he, he comes back from the IL, he is great. He hits nine home runs across the last 48 games. And you have to think that maybe this is just like that kind of thing where he finally got healthy. Now without peak Helton, the already bad Rockies are even worse. They win just 67 games and head off into the offseason. Yet again, unable to solve the, the problem of building a winning team around one of the better hitters of his generation. Now, we head into the 2006 season and more injury trouble and more sort of randomness strike at Helton. 
So he was playing really well. He was hitting 347 heading into the end of April when he finds himself in a ton of pain and he ends up being diagnosed with what's called acute terminal illitis, I think is how you say that, which is apparently a painful inflammation of the lower intestine is how it was described in the Sabre article written about Todd Helton. And that sounds positively awful and was so painful that he absolutely, he actually was hospitalized for three days and then had to go rehab out in Colorado Springs. He ends up missing about 14 games that season. And you have to imagine something that drastic. You don't just recover from that. And that really carried over into the entire rest of the season, even once he came back, because he hits just 302. Oh, yeah, I love Helton, such a great hitter that 302 is because they're just 302. But uh, he has a 404 OBP with an 884 OPS, which was good for a 117 OPS plus with 15 home runs, 40 doubles, 81 RBIs, and 94 runs scored. He doesn't go to the All-Star game. He wins no gold gloves, no silver slovers, and in fact uh, is worth just 2.3 war on the season. You just have to imagine that illness really just sapped him of all of his, his strength and whatnot for the rest of the season. Again, it's just not something you bounce back from. Uh, once you go to the hospital, that, that usually uh, indicates that something's going to stick with you for a while, right? And without Helton at his peak, the Rockies, they do improve. I'm going to give him that. In 2005, they won only 67 games. Here in 2006, they win 76 games. But I guess there's really nowhere to go but up. The thing is, what no one knew, absolutely no one knew, was that this wouldn't be the case for long. That in just one more year, the Rockies would find themselves, the team of destiny would find themselves turning everything around, that everything was going to change for the Rockies for one year, and Todd Helton would be at the center of it. Now, it's interesting, because in the offseason, technically, the Rockies actually entertained trading Todd Helton, which seems insane now to say, considering he is easily the greatest Rocky to ever play. We can talk about Larry Walker, and in some ways, Larry Walker is a more complete player, a more... Well, around a player, put up numbers just as good as Helton. They certainly, like, there's an argument as a player. But to Colorado, no. To Denver, no. It's Todd Helton, and that's it. And the Rockies almost traded him in 2007, which by the time we get to the end of the year, you're going to see why this that's crazy. But apparently the Rockies were asking for too much, and so the, the Red Sox uh, thankfully turned them down. And Helton responds by having a, a great season. He hits 320. With a 434 OBP and a 928 OPS, which is good for a 133 OPS plus, with 17 home runs, 91 RBIs, 86 runs, 42 doubles, and, and frankly, eventually one of the greatest Septembers ever. In fact, the Rockies in general have one of the greatest Septembers ever in this season. And for the record, I just want to see how crazy is it that you can hit 17 home runs in a season? And still end up with a 928 OPS. That's how good Todd Helton was as a hitter. It's really incredible. And at first it seems like the Rockies aren't going to are going to miss the playoffs again and be, be the usual down-in-the-luck Rockies. And then Rocktober, as it was called at the time, happens. And the most incredible thing happens. So they win 13 out of their last 14 games to end the season. 
it was I, I don't know how to describe it if you weren't there or if you weren't watching it. Now, I was not living in Colorado at this point in time, so I don't necessarily have first-hand experience other than what I saw on SportsCenter and things like that. But I, I talked to Katie, my partner, uh, a lot about it because she was here and she was going to grad school here at the time. And this is the thing that made her love baseball is this stretch here. She always liked it, but this is where she came to love it. And it was genuinely one of those things where like it was palpable. You could feel it in the air from the way that I hear people describe it. That just like everyone knew from like the first couple of games that they started winning in a row that something was different, that something special was happening. And you could see it in the players that they felt like something different was happening. And every time this team that was known for never getting the clutch hit, that was known for not really being able to ever get over the hump, suddenly they were getting over every hump. Suddenly they were they were putting it all together. And 13 of 14 games, that's an incredible number to close out a season. Helton was right in the thick of it. Across that stretch, in September, he had third. Uh, he had three walk-off home runs in September alone. He had five home runs across the month as a whole. He hits 396 in September. 396! It's, it's hard to get more clutch when your team needs you the most than hitting 396 across the final month of the season to help your team win 13 of its final 14 games. Uh, again, to go along with those walk-off home runs as well. And, and crazily enough, they uh, they they do it. They they tie. They they finish second in the division, but they end up tying the Padres in there for the wild card, heading into the end of the season. And so that meant that they had to have a game one sixty three, which is just one of my favorite things in sports. Where they're just like, screw it, we just have to have another game. I don't want to tell you, and. So they face the Padres in a one-game playoff, and they win. They win 9-8, to eight, I believe, is, was the final score. Helton hits a huge home run in the fourth inning to help secure the win. It, just an incredible game, uh, an incredible run for, for the Rockies. Rocktober, as it was called, once, once they got there. And it just meant so much to the team and to the fan base and to the, again, that's the one you can look at and you walk around Denver right now. And if you were to walk up to someone and be like, Rocktober, they'd be like, yeah, oh, I remember. Like immediately, uh, everyone. It just was a thing that kind of took over the town for a while. Today. And don't get me wrong, like I'm from Cleveland. We have the same thing. I can walk up to someone and be like, oh, the block. And if you're a basketball fan, that's a reference to the the, the Cavs winning the 2016 NBA championship. Like, oh, blocked by James. It's just a, an incredible moment that resonates with the town. I can talk to people who don't even watch basketball. They know what I'm talking about. And that's how Rocktober was here. It really was just something else. So they had the playoffs. And they, I believe they first face, I didn't put it in my notes, but they first face the Philadelphia Phillies in the division series and they sweep them in three games. Now, Helton doesn't play the greatest. He has just a triple in the series across three games, but it's a three-game series. It's a weird sample and the Rockies head on to the NLCS. Now, again, Helton doesn't play particularly well. He has just three hits in the series, but the Rockies win in four games. And if you look it up, 
there's this incredible, and so I watch a lot of Rockies games. I've been to a lot of Rockies games. I've seen this image a thousand times, and you, you can't forget it. Is It's a play from Troy Tulowitzki to Todd Helton to put away the final out to send them to the World Series. And you can see this moment where Helton makes the catch, and the guy running the first for Arizona tries to slide in the first base. And so you have this indelible image of Helton in a full stretch. This guy's sliding in. He makes the catch. And the moment he makes the catch, it is just hands straight up in the air, full celebration. It is probably the most iconic Colorado Rockies image that you'll ever see for quite some time here, probably. And I think there's a place where it's it's just so fitting that that indelible image, that, that image that will be enshrined as one of the greatest moments in Colorado Rockies history. And it's Todd Helton. It's a picture of Todd Helton. Like, how do you get more iconic than that? And it really was one of those moments that sort of enshrined him as the most iconic Colorado Rocky player. So then they go to the World Series for the first time in their history. And... It unfortunately doesn't go well for the Rockies. They get swept in four games by the Boston Red Sox, but Helton comes alive. He hits 333 in the series across four games and really shows up on the biggest stage uh, for for the Rockies after essentially willing them. Like I can't put it any other way than like the Rockies made that huge run at the end of the season and made it through the playoffs on like willpower and gumption. Right, like they weren't good. They, they, it was basically the same team that won like seventy games the year before. It was just sheer we're done losing, and it isn't happening anymore. And I always have a fun place for that team, and and for what it means to my partner, and what it means to the city. It's just it, it's it's hard to take, even with the World Series loss. It's hard to not just revel in that and really see what that means and, and how important it is to the folks around here. I just love it. It's one of the most iconic playoff runs of all time. It's really super cool. And it happened here in 2007 and in a large chunk because of Todd Helton, who was 33 at this point. And on the twilight of his career, you can see the numbers starting to drop. The power is virtually gone. And the end is coming. And for him to get this season in, it's just, it's incredible. It's so cool. It's the kind of thing that, that, that movies are made of. The, the, the tall tales that myths and legends are written about. So now, fresh off of the, the World Series run, they they head off into the, you know, the 2008 season. And I mentioned how great it was that Helton gets to get this iconic season in because things will start to go downhill for him from here. So 2008, his back just absolutely derails his entire season he plays just 83 games and is actually diagnosed with a degenerative back disorder and that's just it's going to plague him the entire rest of his his career it's going to eventually end his career and it's just a shame because it was something out of his control something that really it'd be one thing if it was like a skill loss or things like that but it just always breaks my heart when you see a decline forced on up by injuries and things like that that are out of your control. So then in he does really struggle. He only hits 264, which is seven home runs in that time period. The batting eye hasn't gone anywhere. He, he has a 391 OBP, but he just can't get anything going. The 
the Rockies struggle. They don't make the playoffs, and they they head into 2009. So at this point now, Helton is 35. He's and he sort of finds a second life. He's not a power hitter anymore. He only hits 15 home runs that year, but he hits 325 with a 416 OBP and a 904 OPS, which is good for a 128 OPS plus, which is pretty darn good for a 35 year old with a degenerative back disorder. But also chips in 86 RBIs. 79 runs and 38 doubles. He finishes 13th in MVP voting, which is the last time he'll get MVP votes in his career. Now, at this point, the Rockies were struggling about midseason or so before they fire Clint Hurdle, the the manager at the time, and bring in Jim Tracy. And it turns things around for the Rockies, and they have a great second half of the season. And so they end up finishing second in the NL West and, once again, get a wild card berth. So for the second time in his career, Todd Helton is in the playoffs. And it doesn't go particularly well for the Rockies. Uh, they lose to Philly in four games, and Helton only hits 188. But it just had to be nice to get that one last swan song sort of playoff appearance uh, for Helton there. Now, adding into 2010, the back is, well, back. He... he just cannot sustain an entire season. He plays in just 118 games that season. He hits just 256 that season with a 728 OPS, which is good for an 87 OPS plus, or bad for an 87 OPS plus. The Rocks only win 87 games, and you could just hear the frustration, not necessarily through Helton, but through those around him. Because he was beloved as a teammate as well. Jim Tracy described it this way. The mentality, the character, the work ethic of this team. It's easy to have all that when the best player in the history of the franchise is the hardest worker on the team. It's absolutely tearing him to pieces not to be involved with us. To not be the player we've known him to be. And that's just... Oh, that's just heartbreaking. It really is. That's just a tough thing to see a player go through. And a tough thing for a, a team to watch him then go through that. If that person is their leader. So, Helton tries to come back in 2011. He's 37 at this point, right? He, he actually has a my quintessential candle burns brightest before it goes out sort of season. He hits 302 with a 385 OBP and an 850 OPS, which is good for a 117 OPS plus. He plays 124 games with 14 home runs, 69 RBIs, 27 doubles, and 59 runs scored. The Rockies win just 73 games that season, though. And really, the writing is on the wall as Helton isn't really able to play a full season. And really, at this age and what, with what's going on, the question is, what is he playing for, too? And 2012 would really bring that home when back pain would plague him the entire season. And eventually, he would have season-ending surgery in August to repair a torn labrum in his right hip. So, just an injury-plagued season. He was not good when he could play because of the injuries. He plays in just 69 games. He hits 238 on the season. And, again, everyone knows this is the end. Everyone does. And so, looking to get at least like a one last shot at things. Helton has surgery in, in the offseason. And everyone knew that this was just to give him one last chance to get right and get one good season. And basically the way Helton described it is, I know there are going to be days when I'm not going out, not going to be out there 
and perform, but then feel like I can go out there and hit there all over the ballpark. I want to be out there. And again, that's just that's one thing when you get to go out on your terms when you're ready, when you're done. But Helton wanted to go keep playing baseball, and he just couldn't. It's not the only... The injuries weren't the only bad thing about the 2013 season, though. In spring training, he's actually arrested, uh, or pulled over, I should say, for driving uh, under the influence in February here in a Denver suburb. He ends up getting a year probation, 24 hours of community service. His quote on it was, part of making a mistake, making a monumental mistake like I made, is recognizing the mistake and making sure it doesn't happen again. It's something he would struggle with really the rest of his life. He would actually run into DUI trouble two more times in his life, I do believe. And you'll know where I stand on this. It's unacceptable, especially since this man's very wealthy at this point. Hire a cab. This isn't that hard. It's just unacceptable. It really genuinely is. And it's such a shame because it is the one mark on, on this likable, great, beloved player. And but certainly isn't as bad as some of the things that, that we've seen players be accused of and run into, but it's also not great. And and it'll certainly ding him in, in terms of his rankings and story and things like that. Uh, and You can't talk about it without bringing him up. It, it sucks. It really does. But it also seems like eventually, while it's something he struggled with, it is something he's worked on and, and, and got help with and, and seems now to at least have some form of some form of control over, or at least is helping getting, dealing with it. So now that's basically his season. He plays in that 2013 season. He hits 249 with 15 home runs in 124 games. And, and that's, he gets to do his round of the, the league. And at the end of the year in September, he announces that that was going to be it for him. And that was going to be a career something we all knew was coming, but to hear him come out and say it was, was the, the last nail in, in the coffin of his career, so to say. And it's a great career. It's an incredible career. You heard me say the 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 numbers at the beginning, and he, he's one of the best left-handed first baseman hitters of all time. It's just that simple. And, and he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, and I think rightfully, like the voters got it right this time. They got him in. That's Todd Helton. And, you know, it's worth noting he still has a ranch out here in Colorado. He is an icon out here. He's, like I said, I, I I can't summarize enough just how beloved he is here in Colorado. I really can't. There might not be a more beloved Colorado athlete than Todd Helton. It's that simple. And, and that's his legacy in the long run here is, is regardless of anything else, that, that he's who made baseball beloved in, in Colorado. And that's a big deal. It's pretty fantastic. So real quick, with a drill. We're going to take our last break here, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about his Hall of Fame candidacy here real quick, and then we'll rank him here on our list, and then we'll call it a day. Welcome back. So, with Todd Elton's brand new induction into the Hall of Fame, uh, there might be some who would debate whether or not he was Hall of Fame worthy. And what's fascinating is I don't actually see all that many arguments against it, like out in the media or anything like that, which is really refreshing. I feel like we've come a, a long way with that. And when I think of Petrolist Discord, and I, I've seen most people be like, heck yeah, Helton got in. So it's, it's nice to see that really everyone gets it and sees what, what I'm looking at, what I'm talking about here when I say I think he's a surefire Hall of Famer. And mostly what I think anyone who would oppose it would 
is, is pointing out the 61.8 war. And I think that there is, because you know, we've talked about this, like you look at Scott Rowland and just getting in and everyone's kind of like, well, that's borderline. Now it's at 70 war. And then now we're looking at 61.8. Are we just keep lowering the, the bar? No, I think, I don't think so. One, because you look at Helton and Helton's uh, decline in the end of his career is more physically related, right? You know, he's, when you get a degenerative back, disorder there's just only so much you can do and so i think that there's a place where you understand that we probably would have gotten you know what he had 369 home runs probably if his back doesn't give out he probably gets to 400 easily he probably gets the close if not to 3,000 hits and so i think we understand that if it weren't for injury towards the end of his career he would have probably had two milestones that make him pretty sure fire hall of famer so i think a lot of people are taking that in consideration and then you factor in the actual accomplishments that he had. There's this, uh, was it, Jay Jaffe actually wrote this up last year. That's what it was. Um, talking about how he is one of just 18 hitters with at least a 300 batting average for his career, a 400 a career on base percentage, and a 500 slugging percentage for his career in at least 7,000 career plate appearances. That's incredible. Just 18 hitters, and he's one of them. The only first baseman on that list, by the way, Frank Thomas, Dan Brothers, Jimmy Fox, and Lou Gehrig. So the only modern hitter at first base to have those sort of numbers other than other than Helton is Frank Thomas. That's a great company to be in. It's worth noting that if you look at a stat, say runs created, right? That's the RC of the WRC plus equation that we would talk about a lot. Helton is 33rd all time, period, amongst all hitters. He, that he has a better runs created uh, number than Craig Biggio, David Ortiz, all who are in the Hall of Fame, over Joe Morgan, over Jeff Bagwell, who's a Hall of Famer, over recent inductee Adrian Beltre, over Wade Boggs, Reggie Jackson, Cal Ripken Jr. You can just keep going down the list on Fred McGriff, who just got put into the Hall of Fame, over Robin Yount, uh, Willie McCovey, Tony Gwen. We talk about Tim Raines, Edgar Martinez, Vladimir Guerrero. I mean, I just keep going on the list. Larry Walker, the, all of these guys. Joey Votto, who I've talked about as I feel like is a Hall of Famer. Todd Helton put up more runs created than all of those guys. And if you look at the list uh, over there at 33, above him at 32 is Paul Molitor. And then above that is George Brett and Honus Wagner. So he's not like that far off from plenty of Hall of Fame hitters. So I really look at when I look at some of those numbers like that, it's clear Helton stacks up. And by the way, he did it in fewer seasons. You start looking at like Molitor has uh, 1,873 runs created in his career. Helton has 1,048. Yet Molitor played for 21 seasons. Helton only played for 17. So there's this place where you go. I bet you if he had stayed healthy a few more years, he would have gotten there too. There's plenty of arguments there to say that when you take into consideration the company that Helton is in, it becomes pretty clear he's a Hall of Famer. Almost no doubter. Especially when you start talking about the average war for a first baseman in the Hall of Fame is what? I believe it's 65 war. And... Uh, yeah, 64.8 is the average career Hall of Fame war. Helton got the 61.8. That's close enough for sure, especially, again, considering his injuries and what he you know, got taken away from. But then if you look at the average of 
seven-year peak of war for a first baseman. That's 42. Helton had 46.6 war over his seven-year peak. When we talk about Jaws, the average first base uh, total of Jaws for a first baseman in the Hall of Fame is 53.4. Helton had 54.2. There's a lot of really good evidence, especially when you start getting into the you start getting away from the, does he get the 3,000 hits? Does he get the 500 home runs part? When you start looking at just how much offense he was able to generate, it's a no, to me, it's a no-brainer. And especially when you look at the peers that he's amongst and the people who he's surrounded by, it just seems to me like an absolute no-brainer before you get into his 15th in war amongst first basemen ever, things like that. So... I really feel like, to me, this was never controversial. If I had a vote, I would have voted for him years ago and would have voted for him every year. But I'm just really glad that that he got in. I think it's well-deserved. I think especially since he should have won the MVP in 2000. Like To me, he's a no-doubt Hall of Famer. Easy choice. So I'm so glad to see him get in. But now the question is, we have this list. Uh, And on this list, I have ranked every player that I've talked about on this podcast. And we have now, what are we up to? Are we up to 80 now? Yes, we are at the big eight zero in terms of players that we have talked about on this podcast. And before we jump into where Todd Helton falls on that sort of, uh, on the list, so to say, I think maybe I should, we should revisit it. Let, let's see who we're talking about. So to go through the top 20, We've got number one, Haru O. At number two, we've got Satchel Page. At number three, we've got Ted Williams. Number four, we've got Josh Gibson. Number five is Barry Bonds. Number six is Mickey Mantle. Number seven is Greg Maddox. Number eight is Mike Trout. Number nine is Ricky Henderson. Number 10 is Ken Griffey Jr. Number 11 is Ichiro. Number 12 is George Brett. Number 13 is Adrian Beltre. Number 14 is Shohei Otani. Number 15 is Clayton Kershaw. 16 is Eddie Murray. 17 is Edgar Martinez. 18 is Sandy Koufax. Number 19 is Tony Gwynn, and number 20 is Hank Greenberg. Jumping down to number 25 is Scott Rowland. Number 30 is Johan Santana. Number 35 is Robin Yount. Number 40 is Fred McGriff. 45 is Roberto Alomar. 50 is Kenley Jansen. 55 is Evan Longoria. Number 60 is Moises Alou. Number 65 is Kyle Hendricks. Number 70 is Doc Gooden. Number 75 is Aramis Ramirez. And then finally, at the end of the list, number 80 is James Paxton. This is an interesting question of where on this list do we think Todd Helton goes? And I think the obvious question is to put him in. We've got this sort of grouping of players right here in the the mid-20s. So like 25, we have Scott Rowland, as I mentioned before. And 24, we have Joey Votto. And Votto is an interesting choice. So Votto, result, and they're actually really close. It's really a fascinating comparison. So Votto has 64.4 war, where Helton has 61.8. Helton's played about 200 more games than Votto and has almost 700 or so more plate appearances, has about 400 more hits, only 13 more home runs, and about 300 more RBIs. And what's fascinating is Todd Helton getting in is honestly the best thing that ever happened to Joey Votto. It basically turns Votto from, I could see some people arguing against him going to the Hall of Fame, into being a surefire Hall of Fame. If you put in Helton, you have to put in Votto. Their numbers are that close. 
Now, Helton hasn't beat in a lot of ways. His batting average is higher. He's got a 316 career batting average to a 294 batting average. Helton's a 4.14 OBP to a 409. 539 slugging to 511. Uh, 953 OPS to 920. Helton basically surpasses Votto in most of those categories. So it's an interesting question of how heavily do I weigh Votto's MVP and then also look at their defense in that like Helton has three gold gloves, Votto has one, Helton has four silver sluggers. Somehow Votto never won one. He's won a batting title where Votto hasn't. But Votto has that MVP, and Votto went to six All-Stars, where Helton went to five. Neither really have the playoff success that you would, you know, usually use as a distinguishing factor. That's really hard, and I feel like, because I'm torn in that way that, like, you could make the argument. And for me... I think, hear me out, I think the deciding factor is going to come down to their yearly war totals. And you look at Votto's totals, and there's a place where, so Votto's best season was 8.1 war. Helton has two seasons higher than that. And when Votto won the MVP in 2010, he did it with seven with a seven war season. Helton was above that multiple times in his career, whereas Votto only got above that in three seasons. I think there's... Man, these two players are, are virtually identical. It's really tough. And I think it's just going to end up being which one of them goes in front of the other, so to say. And I'm willing to give Helton maybe the advantage for already being a, a Hall of Famer, whereas I'm sure in a couple years, soon we'll be able to say the same for Votto. He's still playing. He is... Uh, not retired yet. He obviously is ineligible, but uh, I'm just, I'm really torn in this. This is two of my favorite players ever too. So I'm really trying to, trying to see where my heart and my brain end up lying. And I think really the big thing that's going to boil down to is that if you look at Votto's, let's see. So Votto's peak is 40, seven year peak is 46.9. And if we come down once Helton's again, I know I just said it. But his peak is 46.6. It's identical. They're just, they're literally carbon copies of each other. It's fascinating. Where is he on Jaws? It's 55.6. Helton's 54.2. Like, it, those are negligible differences between the two. I think the only real argument you can make is that Vano tends to average more war per year at 5.1 war, where Helton's 4.5. And they're so close that I think it could be something like that that just divides the two of them. But I think, I think given those war numbers I was mentioning, Votto doesn't have anything that really sniffs an 8.9 war season. And, and Helton has another 8.3 war season in there, which is higher than Votto's highest war season. I, man, oh man, oh man. I think for now, I'm going to put Helton in front of him just because he is a Hall of Famer. Because he has those higher war seasons, that his high was higher, so to say. And then we'll see how Votto keeps doing through the rest of his career, and he might end up moving back in front of him. But for now, I think that means that we are going to make Todd Helton our new number 24. And actually, now I look at it, I actually think, comparing him to Arenado, he Arenado 
is below him in war. And uh, do I think he'll surpass in war? Yes. He's at 54.4 war. So he'll get to that 61 war mark pretty easily. But, I mean, he's behind him in home runs. He's way behind him in batting average uh, in terms of matching up to Helton. He's b- below him in OBP and slugging and OPS by a wide margin. OPS plus as well. So while he's a much better defender, obviously, in a much harder position, he's got more all-star games and gold gloves and all that good stuff. He doesn't have an MVP. And maybe by the end of his career, Arnado will surpass Helton. But then you throw in Helton should have won an MVP. And I think I've argued Arnado should have probably in there too. But that, man, I, I do, the more and more I look at it, the more and more I think actually... Helton could and, and probably should go ahead of Arenado, especially when you factor in that while Arenado is a, a incredibly important Colorado Rocky about history, Todd Helton is like the Colorado Rocky. You know, he is the iconic Colorado Rocky that we think about. So uh, honestly, I think I'm going to move him up against Arenado as well and move him past there. So looking at it, and especially because I think Helton was a better hitter than Arenado. And I think that's clear as day that I'm going to move him. Yeah, he's going to be the new number 23. So I'm going to move him up ahead of Nolan Arenado. I'm not going to move him up ahead of Brooks Robinson. I think that Brooks Robinson being probably the greatest third base defender of all time, thrown into his iconic, being like the original Baltimore Orioles status and in, in his playoff heroics and, and, and reputation. I think for now, Todd Helton will stay behind Brooks Robinson, but I could see an argument for moving him ahead of that. him. Uh, we got Miguel Cabrera at 21, and Greenberg at 20. I could see all him surpassing any and all of those guys. So I think for right now, I'm going to put him at 23 and sleep on it and see if my thoughts change at all. But for right now, I think that's where we're going to go, and I think it's appropriate too. We should move ahead of Brooks Robinson with the DUI stuff and things like that. It's a really good spot for him there. That's our episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. I know this one ran a little long, but I really I want to dive into talking a lot about Helton and really getting in through his career and what I think makes him great and how important he was to everyone here in Denver. I think for our next episode, we're going to do, because we are in February now, I will probably be doing a Black History Month episode like I did last year. And then from there... We will either do another additional episode for that, or we'll probably jump right into talking about our other Hall of Fame candidate who we haven't spoken about so far, which is Joe Maurer. And then we'll hop right back into the folks that retired and go from there. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for for joining me. And enjoy the rest of your weekend. It sounds like it's going to be pretty snowy throughout most of the U.S., but just kind of keep sheltered and warm and curl up with maybe some old baseball videos or do some fantasy mock drafts or something. Have some some fun getting ready for baseball. We got pitchers and catchers reporting before we know it, and uh, then the season will be upon us. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a good one. 